ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name is Matt Brand. Welcome to the Country Hour, broadcasting today from the Territory Natural Resource Management Conference. There's a few hundred people at the Darwin Convention Centre today and they've all got a passion for protecting and improving the natural assets of the Northern Territory. This is often dubbed the Ranger Conference and don't get me wrong, there's a bunch of wonderful Ranger groups that have come here from some of the most remote parts of the Northern Territory. But this event has always been so, so successful at attracting a wide range of people involved in natural resource management. And on the Country Hour today, you're going to meet some of them and hear their incredible stories. You'll be learning about an Aussie invention that is helping to reduce feral pig numbers. Also today we'll be talking about fire and find out if bilbies have been able to survive those severe bushfires in the Tenamai region this year. And you'll also meet some ranger groups in Arnhem Land who have decided to scrap the term ranger for something more appropriate. This is all coming up on today's program. I really hope you can stick around. A reminder, if you do need a duck out in the paddock for whatever reason, you can always download the podcast and listen at a time that suits you. Now, first up today, let's talk about gamber grass. We all know about this weed and the threat that it poses to the Northern Territory's environment. And in recent times, there's been a lot of stories about how this weed has spread into the Litchfield National Park. But gamber grass is also in Kakadu. But hopefully not for long. I'm joined this afternoon by Sean and Jack, who are with the Jurubu Rangers in the Kakadu region. Jack, welcome to the Country Hour. Tell us about gamber grass in your part of Kakadu. How big is it? What's the threat out there? Well, um, in Mirat country we have like 166 plots of gamba and it's causing a lot of fuel and it's just getting more worse and it's poisoning animals. And plus it's making wildfire. Um, And tell tell us more about the fire threat and what it's doing to country. It's spreading and it's just damaging everything in the country it's just burning and eating everything on the land and Sean it's an infestation that's secretly there for a while yeah it's got a bit of a history yeah that's it and um, we only sort of became aware of the gamba especially within Mirar country around 2018 and off our own backs we started our program um, which was pretty basic to start with it was basically just learning what it looks like where we could find it um, that kind of thing so um, yeah yeah so it's there in Kakadu tell us what you're doing to try and get rid of it yeah so um, basically we teamed up with TNRM and made a proper project management plan um, based around Gamba to ensure that uh, when we attack it, we attack it properly and that we can uh, reduce um, or eradicate it from the park is is the plan. So, yeah. And in your presentation today, one of the dot points said on track to eradicate Gamba from Kakadu. 
Yeah, so we've already seen in the last few years uh, how quickly you can get rid of Gamba. We've got a monitoring station that we set up, um, which which is showing us how quickly the canopy is recovering, how how uh, how much more ground cover and native um, plants there are as well. So um, we're already seeing uh, improvements in in that monitoring station. So, yeah. so and tell me about the how. How are you getting rid of Gamba? Yeah, so the the way we do it. Um, as a lot of people know, Gamba grows during the wet season, um, so it is actually really hard to access the areas where we treat Gamba. Uh, so we use helicopters mainly to fly teams in with 15-litre uh, backpacks, and they then walk out to known spots and, and treat it uh, with a glyphosate. And so, Jack, this is the sort of work you're doing, hey? Tell, tell us about what a day looks like out on your country getting rid of Gamba. Uh, it's, it's hot and it's just... Hard work and sweaty, always sweaty, yeah. And what's it going to mean to the communities in that region if you're successful in getting rid of Gamba? Um, well, we hope we can get rid of it this year and see how we go. And that's hopefully then a template, is it, Sean? for other parts of the Northern Territory. Yeah, that's it. And I, I guess our plan is going to be used a lot more broad now, especially the way we survey to look for the plants. Um, we found a really good way to do that, uh, thanks to TNRM for their help with that, of course. Um, but, yeah, we've kind of narrowed it down to the best way to find it, the best way to treat it, especially for where we are anyway. Um, so a lot of it is inaccessible because it's the wet season when we do spray it. Um, so we heavily rely on helicopters and a lot of people because it's, it's uh, very hard work, very hot. Yeah, and what are you hearing in terms of gamba grass being found in other parts of Arnhem Land? Um, yeah, well, look, gamba's pretty much NT-wide. Um, I think it's more about people just um, sharing information and letting people know that it, it can be found across the whole territory. Um, obviously, people are a big contributor to the spread of gamba grass. Yeah, map um, I saw today, it's sort of noticeable along roadsides. That's it's right. It's popping up. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And um, we found some roadside stuff in Kakadu that's outside of Mira, but it was coming in from Arnhem Land. So uh, that, that was our guess at least. But yeah, road corridors are a really um, important place to monitor. Yeah. Well, all the best. What an amazing result it will be if next year at the Territory Natural Resource Management Conference you can get up on stage and say, we did it. Yeah. We got rid of Gamba. Yeah. Well, it's definitely going to be a couple of years before that couple happens. A couple of years. Okay. Yeah, a couple of years. Um, we've been at it now, like I said, for a, you know, a good five, six years. But um, now that we've got the proper uh, management plan, I think within a few years we'll definitely be on top of it. So, Best of luck, Sean. Jack, thanks so much for being on the country. I really appreciate awesome. it. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, they are from the Jurubu Ranges in Kakadu. Getting rid of... Gamba grass. It can be done. It can be done. We're broadcasting from the Territory NRM Conference. I hope you can stick around for today's broadcast. I'm joined now by the Chair of Territory NRM, Alistair Shields. Happy Conference Day to you. Thanks, Matt. For those who have never been, tell us a bit about this conference and wow. what it's all about. I said a little bit before that um, I'm on a few different boards and I go to a few different um, conferences, forums, that kind of thing around the Territory. And this is very much my favourite one. Um, and it's just full of such joy and enthusiasm. People coming talking about real projects on real land that's making a real difference for the environment and for Territorians. Well, we've just heard from the Jurubu Rangers on track to successfully eradicate gamba grass. 
all starting to think it couldn't be done, Alistair. And isn't that an awesome story they tell and the way they tell it? They sort of stumbled across it and then started to work out they wanted to do something to eradicate it. Then they partnered with us and they've got a plan and it's quite a sophisticated operation now and they're well on the way, I think, to eradication. On the topic of partnership, for anyone in primary industries who's listening to the Country Hour today, what's your pitch to them? in terms of, of getting involved with Territory NRM? Sure. I guess my pitch would be come and talk to us. And we do go and talk to parishes quite a bit. So we are present at the NTCA conference every year. So if you're at the conference next year, come and talk to us and we can tell you how to get involved. But for the past eight years or so, we've had a thing called the Sustainable Pastoral Business Program. And we work really closely with pastoralists and we help them to find that sweet spot where if you get your land management practices right, you're actually getting a better commercial outcome for your property, but you're also maintaining your property and um, looking after it for future generations. Yeah, I think one of those cattle producers is up for an award tonight. I think you may well be the right. The Riggs family from Lakefield. Indeed, that's who, right. Who have long been involved with Territory NRM. Um, f- for you, what have been some of the big wins in 2023? 2023. Look, I think Gamba is one, um, not just in Kakadu, where we've heard the uh, conversation today, but you know we're again partnering with the NT government, with the Gamba Army. Um, I think we're starting to see some good outcomes in Gamba across the top end, so I think that's a, a, a pretty big one. Um, there's lots of individual, small, in some sense, but exciting um, things that you see at, at the conference today, finding that rare skink out in Arnhem Land, um, seeing how technology can be used to enhance both surveillance but also detection. So surveillance where um, feral animals or weeds might be, but also detection of rare species and a better understanding about how we might protect them. Yeah, and during a time where money is tight, how is the organisation faring? Look, financially we're in a fairly sound position. Um, We've had the end of a five-year funding round with the federal government sort of finish up in June, which meant we've had to finish a lot of reports and projects, and that's mean we've got sort of income coming in to to pay for those projects. We're in the process of, you know, starting the next five-year funding round, but we're starting that in a good position. Interest rates rising haven't helped a lot of mortgage uh, owners, but they've helped us a little bit as well. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, thanks so much for your time on the country, Al. Well done on on another great event. Hundreds of people here today at the Convention Centre. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be on the show and thanks for supporting uh, the conference as always. It's a quarter to one and you are tuned into the Country Hour broadcasting from the Territory Natural Resource Management Conference in Darwin. Now, the Australian Transport Safety Bureau has released its final report into a fatal helicopter crash that killed Chris Willow Wilson last year, one of the stars of the Netflix series Outback Wrangler. The crash also left the pilot with significant injuries. That report is out today. The ABC's Miles Holbrook Walk has been looking at the report and joins us this afternoon. Miles, what did the ATSB find? Well, essentially, Matt, two of its key findings were around contributing factors regarding uh, fuel exhaustion, which essentially means that the chopper ran out of fuel before it went down, and that was the primary causative factor of this crash in the eyes of the ATSB. And we're going to hear right now from the Chief Commissioner at the ATSB, Angus Mitchell, who basically plays in detail exactly what happened in the lead-up to and how the chopper went down. During the subsequent subsequent auto-rotation emergency forced landing procedure, 
The pilot released the hooks and sling line, carrying the egg collector beneath the helicopter. Sadly, the egg collector was released above a height that would likely be survivable. And with insufficient main rotor energy to cushion the landing, the helicopter collided with the ground and the pilot was seriously injured. Based on an analysis of the fuel samples and other evidence, the ATSB found that the helicopter was likely not refuelled at a fuel depot about three quarters of the way between Darwin and the crocodile egg collecting area, and that the pilot did not identify the reducing fuel state before the helicopter's engine stopped due to fuel exhaustion. As such, this investigation illustrates the importance of effective fuel management. This is especially critical when operating a helicopter where a fuel-related power loss offers few safe options, such as inside the height-velocity avoid area with a vulnerable human external load. In addition, and although not assessed on the evidence as having a contributory role in this accident, the operator's history of non-compliance with regulatory requirements, maintenance standards and accurate record keeping increased the risk level for much of their aviation activities. And that was Angus Mitchell there, Matt, basically outlining that at Mount Borrowdale, where some eyewitnesses had told investigators that the chopper had been refuelled, they found off the back of chemical testing that wasn't the case. They did note that there was a supposing evidence that was raised by witnesses who spoke to the ATSB, as well as other people in other parts of the Territory who spoke as part of their investigation. But ultimately, they brought it back to chemical testing, which found the type of fuel at Mount Borrowdale was not at all present in this Robinson 44 chopper. So essentially based off that empirical evidence they couldn't make the finding that there was a way in which that they could have refuelled at that station. They've also seriously looked at CASA, the Civil Aviation Safety Authority and the way in which they had oversight of Hellybrook, the operator of this chopper, and that they said there wasn't sufficient processes in place to make sure that Hellybrook was compliant with the right set of safety standards to do crocodile egg collection with a sling and helicopter involved. You actually need a special exemption to have this coming through and they found that CASA's processes weren't sufficient at the time. They have noted, they have altered them since and that that has uh, led to uh, a better oversight in general of uh, aviation. We also found out just uh, overnight that NT WorkSafe has permitted one uh, aviation group to resume crocodile egg collection via helicopter services. That isn't Hellybrook though. Okay. And Miles, have I read this correctly? The ATSB has confirmed that it found traces of cocaine in the pilot? That's right, Matt. Specifically, it's what they call cocaine metabolites. And essentially, the reason they use that phrase is because it's not a high amount of cocaine. It's what they would call low level, in fact, in a briefing they provided to the media. Essentially, what it means is that it was not present in the sense that it would have an impact on someone. It would be very much in the ilk of between kind of as many as four days ago, as little as perhaps 24 hours before, but that's as soon as it would have been. It wasn't the allegation that the pilot had used uh, any cocaine or other illicit substances before taking to the air. Have a listen to Angus Mitchell again. Now, whilst we know the cocaine metabolites existed because we have the toxicology reports from the hospital when the pilot was admitted, um, we did not have sufficient evidence to suggest it contributed to this particular incident. Um, But we do know, and we've highlighted in our report, 
that, um, that cocaine use and any of those recreational drugs can have an adverse um, effect on safety, on attention, on irritability, on um, concentration, etc., and on fatigue. However, we didn't have sufficient evidence to suggest those things were present at the time of the accident. And Matt Wright has just spoken out, releasing a video to Instagram speaking about the crash and indeed these findings. We were devastated at the time when Willow was killed and now double devastated to find out that the helicopter ran out of fuel while sling Willow doesn't make it any easier. But not only that, to um, also find out that there was um, cocaine derivatives in um, the pilot's blood. You know, my stance on drugs has been pretty strong, not doing them, not having any of my guys do them, and to find this out has, uh, has blown me away. So that's Matt Wright there, who's a known close friend and associate and indeed co-star of Willow alongside several television programs speaking about his own personal hurt. It is worth noting again, though, that the ATSB found that the small amounts of cocaine were not a causative factor of this crash that uh, happened in February last year, Matt. And Miles, there is an ongoing criminal case related to this crash, a very public case. What does this report out today mean for all of that? So essentially the ATSC, ATSB report is independent of that criminal investigation. A lot of the evidence gathering won't be able to be even used as admissible evidence in the trial, Angus Mitchell said today, because of the way in which the statutory powers of the ATSB work and the way in which they really set out to improve safety across transport rather than, as again they said today, they're not out to blame people or point fingers, but rather to ensure tragedies like this don't happen again. What we do know is that Matt Wright is among a series of individuals who is still facing criminal charges in the Northern Territory courts. They will be heard later this year. Matt Wright has strenuously denied any wrongdoing, and as you heard from him earlier, uh, he's uh, certainly uh, uh, focused on elements of uh, this report and uh, is still still clearly carrying the, the sadness in that video. He gets quite emotional when speaking about the passing of uh, his friend and colleague, Chris Willow-Wilson. Miles, thanks so much for keeping the country, our audience, up to date. We appreciate it. People can read more about this report that's out today via the ABC News website. It is 8 to 1. You are tuned into the Country Hour. Let's have just a little break and come back to the Territory Natural Resource Management Conference. Pick up the latest issue of Gardening Australia magazine for summer flowering natives, hibiscus and celosia. Get tips on growing Brussels sprouts and leafy greens. Create a hanging basket and make a living wreath. And in Organic Gardener, learn how to beat the heat. You'll discover the best veggies to grow now, why we use wicking beds and how to keep you cool with a water garden. Available from newsagents and abcmagazines.com.au. Matt Brown with you this afternoon, broadcasting from the Territory Natural Resource Management Conference that's been held in Darwin. I'm not alone. Our Alice Springs reporter, Victoria Ellis, is here as well. And yesterday you got involved with some of the workshops being held by Territory NRM. Tell us about that. Yeah, it was really, really good, Matt. It was so nice to see what's happening in other parts of the Territory, apart from just in the centre. I stopped in at a feral cat management session, as well about one, how to wrangle data and understanding what data is actually available to people in all sorts of different things, flora and fauna and maps. It was just crazy. I didn't even know all that stuff existed. (laughs) So it was really good to sort of see it and get an idea of it. What's been done to get rid 
rid of feral cats at the moment? Oh, Are they so having many a win? <laughs> well, unfortunately, um, what I've been hearing is that the fires, we've obviously had a lot of those across the territory, are kind of a bit of a, a big waving red flag to cats and they see it and they know, oh, hang on, this might be an easy spot to get a feed. They know there's lots of native animals that might be coming out of the ground from hiding from the flames. So that's a bit sad. But the thing that really came across from that workshop to me was that you need multiple pronged approaches to get all the cats. Some cats will respond to baiting, some cats you'll need sharp shooters. So it was interesting to see that across that whole area of the territory. I was with someone recently and we were talking about the, the fires in the Tenemai in particular and someone said, what will happen to all the bilbies? Well, living out there and you've got someone who might be able to answer that for us yes <laughs> yes i do indeed uh hayley gale is here and she is a researcher she's doing her phd on bilbies and has been looking at bilbies in the tanami specifically thank you so much for joining me hayley what has been the impact of those huge fires in the tanami on bilbies yeah, so the jury's still out. We're not 100% sure just how badly those fires will be affecting bilby populations. But in general, uh, big, wide-scale, hot fires can take away a lot of those food resources that the bilbies depend on. And a lot of those things take several years to grow back. So we can potentially see, you know, in terms of sort of direct impacts, the bilbies are not being killed in the fires. They're quite insulated in their deep burrows. Um, but... They will tend to move away from those burn areas and if the whole landscape's burnt, it doesn't leave many options for them in terms of where they can go. So, yeah, we're a little bit worried about those fires. And we were just talking about cats and seeing fires. What's that like for cats and foxes in the Tanamise after those fires? Yeah, so cats and foxes are both notorious for coming into those burnt areas straight after a burn's gone in. Um, and we think that's because by taking away a lot of that habitat, um, a lot of the grasses and shrubs that the small animals and things like bilbies would take cover in, it actually makes it a lot easier for those animals to hunt those small animals. So um, their hunting is effectively just a lot better in burnt areas and there's been some studies that have shown that they'll travel kilometres to get to those fire fronts. It's really hard to know the absolute population of bilbies. Can you kind of explain why that is? Yeah, so bilbies are an animal that are really difficult to monitor. They're really difficult to trap. They generally don't like going into cage traps. So some of those more normal methods that we might use for monitoring small mammals just don't work on bilbies because we just can't catch them. Um, and they're also an incredibly wide-ranging animal. You know, you can go out and you can survey a site and find them in one year and then return there 12 months later and they're not there anymore. They like to move around the landscape quite a bit in response to resources, so that can just make it incredibly challenging to get a good idea of how well their populations are doing. So how challenging does that make it then to assess the impact of fires on the bilby population? Yeah, it, it is a really challenging thing. Um, we're sort of trying to tackle some of those issues using some more novel approaches. So things like extracting DNA from scat. Um, we're actually working on some methods at the moment to try and estimate bilby abundance and also look at genetic diversity using that sign rather than having to catch the animals themselves. But we don't have a lot of baseline information at the moment, so we don't really know how 
healthy those populations are or how many individuals are left out there in the wild. So in terms of assessing the actual impact of those fires, it's going to be really challenging because we just don't have anything to compare it to. Well, hopefully once your research is done very soon, you'll be able to give more insight into the Bilbao populations across those regions. Thank you so much, Hayley Gale. It was a pleasure to have you on the program. No worries. Thanks so much for having me. That was Hayley Gale, who is doing a PhD researching the populations of bilbies in the Tanamai Desert. What a cool job. Yeah. Do you get to hold little baby bilbies? That's what I'd want to do. Oh, no, she doesn't. <laughs> They've got beautiful big ears and long tails, though. I wouldn't mind having a hold of Yeah, there. they're just one of the great Aussies. And, yeah, those, those fires, just so sad what's happened this year. But, thankfully, there's been some good rain starting to pop up in parts of the Tenamai, the top end starting to get some rain. We'll be speaking to the Weather Bureau at five past one to get a sense on if there's more on its way over the next week or so. As always, Country Hour fans, if you have a question for the Bureau, send it through on that text line 0487 1057 and we will put it straight to the Bureau. We've still got plenty of great stories coming from the Territory Natural Resource Management Conference. We'll be catching up with a company whose invention is helping to get rid of feral pigs. Haven't they become such a massive problem for the north? But an Aussie invention is making a difference, so you'll learn about that. You'll also hear from some ranger groups in Arnhem Land who have made the decision to scrap the word ranger. They've chosen something else to describe themselves that they feel is more appropriate. I'll be telling you all about that in the second half of the Country Hour. But it's now news time, 1 o'clock. I'll see you back here at the Territory NRM conference in five minutes' time. Yo, country. Hello. My name is Otto Campion. Pulmania, they call me from Bush name. I'm a Arifia swamp ranger. I'm working um, with many countrymen. And you're listening to the Country Hour. And Brian with you this afternoon, broadcasting from the Territory Natural Resource Management Conference. I hope you're enjoying the broadcast. As always, if you have to get out into the paddock for whatever reason, or maybe you're about to lose reception on the highway, you can always download the podcast and listen at a time that suits you. Our text number, 0487 1057. Someone here has got a song request for Ganga Jang. <laughs> and... And a question, has anyone got to focus on feral cats? Those mongrels will be breeding up after three wet years, says someone here on 0487991057. It's a tricky one, isn't it, getting rid of feral cats? We'll be talking about getting rid of feral pigs in a moment and taking a look at an Australian invention. But first, let's go to the Weather Bureau. Billy Lynch is there this afternoon. Billy, has there been more rain in the last 24 hours? There has, Matt. Uh, yeah, I guess yesterday we saw some fairly active thunderstorms across the Tanami and Western Barclay district. So in our rain gauges, top of the list was Kintour with 33 millimetres, Supplejack with 20 millimetres. Um, so that's pretty good. And then there's just been a scattering of sort of 5 to 10 millimetres elsewhere across the, uh, particularly the northern half of the top end. Oh, sorry, the northern half of the Territory. Yeah, I'm here at the Convention Centre overlooking Darwin Harbour. It looks promising outside. <laughs> it looks a little bit promising. What is the forecast in terms of more rain? Yeah, promising. Uh, quite an unstable day today. We're seeing, yeah, some good storms around Dundee Beach and uh, some showers popping up around Darwin's rural area at the moment. Um, but we're also seeing storms uh, across the northern Barkley 
uh, and even some showers and storms between Alice Springs and Yalara. So the whole territory has humidity and everything that is needed for, for more showers and thunderstorms. So the outlook um, for the rest of today uh, and the rest of this week and the weekend is, is looking quite promising for, for more showers and thunderstorms. And uh, the most likely areas are going to be across uh, inland parts of the top end and then down to about Tennant Creek. That's where it's most likely going to occur. Yeah. Now, this is promising language that you are using, Billy Lynch. Can you give us a, a better sense on potentially how many millimetres might fall across parts of the Territory in the next sort of five, seven days? Yeah, OK. Um, yeah, obviously it's showers and thunderstorms, a little hit and miss um, with that nature of rainfall. But uh, Central Australia, these storms, 10 to 30 millimetres, you know, each day. Um, and then up in the top end, a bit better. So probably we'd be looking at 20 to 50 with some isolated falls up to 100 millimetres, uh, particularly across the, uh, the Western Arnhem um, and maybe down into the, the Carpentaria district. Uh, and that's where it has been hottest lately as well. So that will, will break the back of some of those really hot temperatures across the Arnhem district. Yeah, rightio. Um, I, I bumped into a bloke from Boralula. He was... He just wanted more rain to get rid of the fire and to improve the fishing. Got any good news for the good folk of Boralula? Yeah, look, yeah, Boralula's in a, in a prime spot uh, to get thunderstorms. So, um, yeah, definitely rain on the cards for that way. And uh, I can't guarantee the fishing will be good down there, but hopefully it pans <laughs> out for him too. Great. And is there anything else we need to be aware of this afternoon? Uh, not at all, no. We're not really expecting anything too too dangerous or high impact with the weather today. Beauty. Have a lovely afternoon. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Matt. That is Billy Lynch there at the Weather Bureau. If you're tuning in, this is the Country Hour, broadcasting from the Territory Natural Resource Management Conference. You, you may be able to hear the room that I am in has just gotten a little bit more quiet, and that's because the lunch period is over and the delegates here at the event uh, going into the main conference room. Just looking at the program for this afternoon, just to give you a sense on some of the topics that are being covered in this afternoon session, there's going to be a presentation on Darwin Harbour and the work being done to protect threatened shorebirds. Then Munro Hardy from Carbine Park near Catherine will be presenting on the evolution of decision-making in agriculture. And the Hewitt Cattle Company also presenting this afternoon on sustainability in Australia's red meat industry. Lots going on at the Territory NRM conference. Uh, my next guest is Barry Kelly from the company Pig Beta. And, well, he's all about trying to get rid of feral pigs in Australia. What a challenge that is. Barry, tell us about how you got into the, the business, into the world of feral pigs. Yeah, mate, I just, it started about 20 years ago. I was asked to do a feral pig survey in the top end of the Riverland of South Australia. Um, didn't know a lot about feral pigs, but just did the survey. And, um, yeah, just got hooked on feral pigs, and that survey developed into a five-year tri-state pig project with South Australia, New South Wales and Victoria. Um, and I just got the pig bug. I've been doing it ever since, and, and I love it, yeah. And so this Australian invention of yours, tell us a bit about it. Yeah, I was doing these projects and we're doing a lot of projects funded through Landcare groups 
Um, and there just had to be a better time. We're wasting so much time free feeding, going out every day. Landholders are always, they're time poor. Um, and they just didn't have time to go and check it all the time and it wasn't getting done on time and whatever. So uh, there was just nothing available. So we, um, we built our first pig beta prototype in 2014 um, with the idea of being able to free feed properly. So we only have to check it once a week. Holds up to 250 kilograms of grain. Um, or pellets. Yep. So we've only got to go there once a week instead of going out every day. Holds grain that or pellets that I assume's got like a 1080 poison in them. Something yeah, like that. Yeah. No, we free feed. So with either bait, um, with a pig baiter, we free feed with pellets or grain. We've got our own pellets that we've developed. Yep. A high protein pellet. But whether you're going to use 1080 or hog on, you have to free feed anyway. And with a pig baiter, you can bait with 1080, or you can put the tray inserts in and use the hog on bait. Yep. So, yeah. So, you know, you might see cattle operations with a nice feeder so the cattle can go along and enjoy a good feed of grain. You've built one for feral pigs, though. Uh, how do you stop other animals from coming along and having a feed? Yeah, but the, the trick is the development of the flap and the, the bar. That Pigs naturally do everything with their snout. They root up the ground, they lift up tree roots and dig the ground for worms and, and whatever. So it's just using their natural instinct to lift this flap and the snout and the very last trials that we did were in cattle feedlots and uh, a property that had dorpers and we deliberately free fed them out of the pig beta for two weeks and then we put it down into the training mode or the, so that only feral pigs could access it. Yep. Um, and then over that eight years we had to prove that nothing else could get into it, whether it's domestic stock or native animals. Mm. So nothing else touches it? Nothing else can get into it except the pig. <laughs> so Australia's feral pig problem... Are we winning, Barry? Um, no, we're not winning. We're not doing enough. Um, apart from New South Wales, there's very limited. They've got good funding this year for feral pigs and they're doing some great work down there with the local land services. Um, but out of New South Wales, there's very limited funding. And especially here in the top end, which is a gateway to any biosecurity issues that we're going to have coming into Australia, like foot and mouth and whatever, if it's going to come in, it's going to come in here. Um, we need to be doing a lot more up here in the top end to actually get the numbers now down. Everything we're doing is just maintaining the numbers. Yeah. Mm. As these ranges near us today know, I mean, a lot of that top end country is so remote, it's rugged, it's mm. tough to get into, yeah. which I assume is the big part of the challenge. I mean, even in your invention, would it suit these remote, remote areas? Yeah, perfect for these remote areas. And one thing we've developed, because the big one holds 250 kilograms of free feed, we've got a heli lift that um, we can drop into those remote locations with right. a helicopter. So if you knew of a remote billabong yep. that was getting hammered by pigs, yep. you could... Perfect. Drop it in there, set it up. Um, it's got remote... As an option as a remote sensor, tell you how much grain's left in it, sends it straight back via satellite to your computer. So when it runs out of grain, helicopter just drops another one that's already baited alongside of it and takes the empty one out and no one has to touch the ground. How many pigs could get rolled by one of these, do you think? Um, we've had 80 to 100 pigs baited off of one feed. Off on one a, feed. One pig yep. baiter, yep. Jeez. Yeah, and if we can free feed, the idea of free feeding long enough for two weeks, generally we'll get 100% of those pigs. The, uh, I think I did see her, the, the national coordinator for the Feral Pig mm. Action Management Group is here at this conference. 
Dr. Heather Chenin. Yeah, yes. Um, you're in this industry. What do you think that national group needs to be doing? Um, I think Heather's doing a good job. She's, a, she's just a coordinator. She came into the job not knowing about feral pigs, which I thought was perfect. Mm. She came into the job with no preconceived ideas or of her own. So she's doing the job where she's bringing all the states all together. So we're all doing different projects in different states. We're all doing the same thing. We're all doing the same research trials. We're just wasting so much money. By having this national feral pig coordinator, bringing the states together, we're learning from each other. Um, and down the track, I think um, they've got a now they've got a national feral pig action plan that they've developed, which is great. And down the track, I'd like to see them develop a national feral pig best practice management plan. So we've all everyone's got different ideas about the right way to go about feral pigs. Mm. It'd be nice to see something drawn up with trials done to see what works the best and the in order of trapping, baiting first, and following up with helicopter or vice versa. Yeah, because mm. it does cost Australia a lot of money. I've forgotten mm. the number on what it costs, even oh. just agriculture yeah. every year. That's it's right. huge. Yeah, and that's right. And with the native animals and, um, you know, your turtles and the turtle nests and they're trying to protect with our interest from Cape York is one of those remote areas where they're looking at the heli lift and dropping them in with yeah. the helicopter. Mm. Lovely to meet you, Barry. Enjoy yeah. the rest of your time in, uh, in Darwin. Good on you, mate. Thanks for the time. That is uh, Barry Kelly there, who is um, well, he got his business set up at the Territory Natural Resource Management Conference. It's probably something that I've noticed more of in the last few years of this event. You're seeing more commercial businesses come in to show these sort of groups what is available to help them in their day-to-day jobs of getting rid of weeds, getting rid of feral animals. So you've got that sort of wonderful mix here at a conference in Darwin of the ranger groups doing all that work on country, the commercial sector with their wares, and, yeah, it, it makes for an interesting place, an interesting event, and I trust you're enjoying the broadcast here this afternoon. It is 17 past one. I'm next going to meet some ranger groups who want to get rid of the word ranger. If you're tuning in, this is the Country Hour and we're broadcasting from the Territory Natural Resource Management Conference. And uh, that sound in the background you can hear is from one of the presentations this morning that was done by the Uralka and Dimaru Ranger Groups from North East Arnhem Land. Uh, they got up on stage to share with the audience what they're doing out on country and also discuss... Uh, a new framework that's been launched by these organisations. To tell us a little bit more about that, I'm joined by Yunamala, who is from the Yurikala Group. Uh, good afternoon to you. Tell us uh, a bit about the work your organisation's been doing this year. Yeah, I'm good afternoon. Um, the work that we've been done the last couple of two years, it is a uh, not new way of uh, managing the country. It is like a um, very old way of the managing country. As you know that Yolngo framework is laid on the ground. Our people last 40,000 of years been managing the country and looking after it and, and preserving culture. And that's why we as the three rangers, Iralka and Demoro, we're working together because of through this MOU agreement that we are um, making our relationship together so we can work together. 
through the MOU um, agreement. Yeah, and, and let's talk more about this agreement, this framework that's been launched at the conference. One of the key points that really stood out to me was uh, a want from the organisations to not use the word ranger anymore. Tell us about that. Well, that is something that what we were thought about um, because ranger is a uh, the word that's come from the from the white man society, and what we were trying to turn the page and turn the concept of the white man into the Yolngo concept to able to call ourselves as a Yolngo Jakamiru for the land and for the sea too. And that will be, will be, we will be called ourselves as a, as a ranger or Wanga or Jakamiru. Yeah, share, share with us that word again, meaning carers of country. Caring for country, which is the word Jakamiru Jaka. Jaka means look after for the land, it's Wanga. Beautiful. And we've got here uh, Timmy from the uh, Dimaru Corporation. Uh, this, this new word meaning carers of country, how important is it to you, Timmy? It's a, it's a very important Wanga um, Jaka um, because of the, the language, a lot of meanings. Uh, Ranger is the name, but there's a, there's a lot of, lot of meanings. Um, but if we say Wanga Jaka it means to us. It's a powerful language and powerful way of saying it. You own the land, you you're not only own the land, but because land owns people. So Jakamiri is looking after it. You must look after that, um, the land. And Yolngo um, Jakamiri, uh, it's got a lot of meanings. One, one, one name, but there's a lot of, lot of meanings. But also there's ranges are a lot of names, a lot of meanings. Yeah. And for your organisation this year to see the presentations today about the epic amount of work that you do cleaning up these remote beaches from marine debris and ghost nets. There's something like 12.7 tonnes of rubbish mm. that you've cleaned off yes. these remote beaches. Tell our audience a bit about that work and what it involves. Well, we do have a partnership with um, Yeralka Rangers and Dimuru Rangers. We have um, memory of understanding. We work very hard to look after our beach, but um, we do have also um, a community um, involvement, um, schools and, uh, and other shareholders that participate and support um, our beaches and clean up um, our beach. Is it getting better out there? It's getting better, but also it's because of the uh, seasonally um, um, wind and the sea comes back. But it's going to be it's going to be rubbish for many years. Yeah. And perhaps finally to both of you, what do you hope this Yulnu framework will mean to Indigenous groups around the Northern Territory? What do you hope they could learn from what you're doing in Northeast Arnhem Land, Yinimala? Well. Um as we all know that every indigenous people across the whole territory coming from different perspectives, different way of living and managing language, culture and so on. But it's up to them to decide it whether they want to live or that way, to be able to manage and to bring that two knowledge together. And the most important part, we must bring our knowledge alive as we all, you all know, 
people or Benin people, whatever we call ourselves, living across this country, we are tidily, tidily connecting to the country. And the knowledge needs to be remained. We need to still pass it on. We need to still teach our people and our kids. And Tim, what do you hope others can, can learn from what you're doing up there? I think um, Timuru and um, Iraqa Rangers telling the fact. We actually want to share this uh, knowledge, um, the Yulmo framework. So we are the, one of the first um, organizations or Wanga Jaka many people that look after and, and learn because it's, it's, a, it's a way that it's a like education and uh, it's, that education has been there it's like a, a national curriculum so we want to share that knowledge yeah well thank you both for being carers for country have i got this right wana jakami wana jakami wana jakami thank you for being on the thank country you. hour yeah big thanks to yinamala gunmana and timmy Jawa barawanga out in northeast arnhem land presenting at the Territory Natural Resource Management Conference, which we're broadcasting from today. The conference continues this afternoon. There's more workshops tomorrow and tonight at the Convention Centre. The Territory Natural Resource Management Awards are being held. It's always a fun night. Um, We've got no Dublin cattle market for you this afternoon, simply because there wasn't enough cattle up for sale to warrant a report so a bit quiet there at Dublin and as I think I mentioned yesterday in the live export trade there's three boats out of Darwin Port this week so a bit of an uptick in the trade and I bumped into Gary Riggs a moment ago and he said the price is now sitting at about $2.70 a kilo for steers. Uh, That's the end of our broadcast from Territory NRM's conference this year. I hope you've enjoyed it. Keep it rural.